Uh, good morning, everybody. Let's let's begin with prayer. Just wanted to tell you all, I love you this morning. <laughs> I love you all. The L-U-V. <clears throat> okay, let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful that you brought us together already around your word, and we have heard from you. We've acknowledged who we are. We've been absolved of our sins, uh, and we are now gathering again together so that we can spread out into this community and into the world to witness to your glory and your grace. Um, Lord, our, our hymnody this morning and even the reflections in our liturgy are so tailor-made for what we're doing today, so I thank you for the way in which you orchestrate the events of our lives and our worship to center around the glory of you, Jesus, and your ascension and in your continued intercession for us. So bless us today and bless us as we begin a new series together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, we're starting an eight-week series today. Um, I don't know if that's good news or bad news. We'll find out in week three, all right? Um, I, I probably mentioned this in this context ad nauseum, so forgive me for doing it again, but the way in which I think through my own um, role and what I like to do teaching-wise here is um, in the fall, I tend to do something Old Testament-y. That's because that's God's Bible and He prefers that, I believe. Um, humor. Uh, and, and then in, in Advent, um, I tend to do something a little bit more uh, theological in nature related, typically to something Trinitarian in flavor. Then when I do this winter series, I like to do something in the New Testament. And that's actually... I look forward to this. It, this is not my ballywick. I, I teach Old Testament. I'm in the Old Testament all the time. I really believe that the um, New Testament made the cut for a reason, so I'm glad it's in. Uh, but uh, I don't get to teach it very often. Um, so this is, I look forward to this. Last year we did Colossians. This year um, we're going to do Hebrews. Um, so we'll do Hebrews for eight weeks. And, I, you know... It's the, it's the kind of thing that you find, I, at least I find, anytime I hop into a biblical book, for example, for, for um, seminary students or undergrads who take Greek, biblical Greek, um, and I, I, you know, I've done a little bit of this in my past, I've forgotten way more than I've even taught, unfortunately, um, but uh, you, when you, you take Greek, uh, you, oftentimes the first Greek reading that students will do is 1 John. Because or, or Mark 1, but typically 1 John. Because 1 John's, for lack of a better term, it's kind of easy Greek. And then every, and you start reading it, you get a little confidence. You're like, oh, I can, I can really make sense of this thing, right? And then they toss you Hebrews, and you're like, I don't know any Greek at all, right? Now, but but I'm, the point is, you, you get into 1 John because it seems kind of easy, right? 1 John. But then you start getting into what 1 John is actually saying, and all of a sudden, I'm like, you know, this little book's got a lot more bite than bark, actually, right? Um, I feel very simple. Hebrews, to my own mind, is a kind of towering book. Um, it's, a, it's a massive book. There's artistry here. There's beauty here. There's an aesthetic sense from the author that we'll see right out of the gate this morning. Um, I have a high regard for Hebrews and consider it really one of my favorite books for a very long time. And I haven't taught it in probably, you know, 15 years. You know, I think the last time maybe I some time in this was 
as a youth director in a church, you know, in a former life, uh, when I did not know my right hand from my left hand, as I guess the Bible would say. Um, so to get into the book of Hebrews is a real delight for me. And it's also a special delight because Hebrews is a place that interfaces with the Old Testament in very poignant ways. In fact, I mean, one could go so far as to say, if you don't have a little bit of Old Testament, let me rephrase that, a lot of Old Testament background percolating somewhere in the study of this book, then it's really hard to get out of the gate, right? Um, so this is a, it's, it's a great book. It's a beautiful book. It's a book that interfaces with the Old Testament. I don't, I really have no idea, and I, I should plan better. This reveals my own sort of inchoate life, but um, I have no idea how far we'll get, okay? Um, and if we end before chapter 6, it's because I'm scared of it. You'll go ahead and know now, right? And if we get through chapter 6 and I don't do chapter 10, you'll know because I'm really scared of that chapter. There are some tough places here um, in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 uh, talks about abandoning the faith and apostatizing. Uh, what does that mean? How does one come to terms with this in relationship to eternal security? You get to Hebrews chapter 10. I think Hebrews chapter 10, I'm using a lot of hyperbole this morning, a lot of overstatement, but um, you'll, you'll grant me that if that's okay. I, I think Hebrews chapter 10 might be one of the scariest chapters in the Bible, right? So if we go right from 9 to 11, you can forgive me on this. I mean, Hebrews chapter 10 says, if, you tramp, if they trampled underfoot the blood of the covenant of Moses, how much more so those who trample under feet the blood of the covenant of the Son of God. It's, uh, I mean, there's, there's a weightiness to the book of Hebrews that demands careful attention, demands patience, and large doses of humility, given the fact that the subject matter is actually so, um, so significant and, and, um, and large. All right, so can I give a few introductory comments about Hebrews, and then we're going to get right into the epilogue, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, which just as an aside... Um, I had to sort of, you know, getting ready for this this morning, had to put some WD-40 on my old Greek wheels. I mean, they're kind of not going very well these days. Um, so I had to sort of squirt this in. But I was reminded getting into this text, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 is one sentence in Greek, right? One long, complicated, powerful, and beautiful sentence. So, we'll, I mean, already you can just see... Um, whoever's writing Hebrews, and you notice I just said whoever, um, whoever's writing Hebrews is um, a master rhetorician and a very careful um, uh, communicator and a very thoughtful um, uh, um, communicator in the way in which he crafts his words. Uh, so a, a few opening statements about Hebrews. All right. Number one, the book of Hebrews is shrouded in mystery. Lots of mystery. I mean, all the kinds of things that you think that you need to know to understand how a book functions, any book. I mean, for example, if you were to do a study on George Eliot's Middle March or something like that, right, or Jane Austen, I mean, if you felt like you needed to do some sort of work on an author, Shakespeare, for example, I mean, what would you do? Well, you'd like to know about their upbringing and you'd like to know about their educational pedigree. It'd be nice to know about some of the social, political things going on in the day. Um, all those can be very helpful aids in identifying the social location out of which various books arise. Right now, I think there's a 
you know, the, the, some of that can be pressed too far in any kind of literature, frankly. But those are the kind of questions that we'd like to know. <coughs> Hebrews, from the beginning to the end, is shrouded in mystery. Who wrote the book of Hebrews, right? That's a great question. Now, I think there are those within the early church who would have argued pretty forcefully, actually, that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. If we get to heaven and we find out that Paul did write the book of Hebrews, no problem for me. I think that'll be fine, right? But it's highly doubtful that he did for multiple reasons, right? In fact, um, the options for who wrote the book of Hebrews are multiple. Some argue Barnabas. You remember this figure that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians, Apollos? Now, the reason why people like to call out Apollos' name is because Apollos was himself a kind of master rhetorician. Now, if, you, if you can remember, Paul complains or at least warns about being overly enamored with the rhetorical gifts of certain kinds of people. I think there's a kind of undercurrent here with Paul. Um, and that's what we find in Hebrews. Hebrews is rhetorically crafted in a powerful way, so I think people say it might be Apollos. I think Origen in the second century gets it right. Here's a famous quote from Origen in the early church. But who wrote the epistle? In truth, only God knows. End quote. Right. And I think that's probably the best way to understand this. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. God, God does. And in a strong sense, we can say God himself wrote the book of Hebrews. I think that's okay to say. But as far as the human agent, we don't, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Well, then matters even get more complicated, right? Not only do we not know who wrote the book, we really don't even know who the addressees are of the book. Um, who's, who's, whoever wrote it, who is that person writing to? Um, and uh, again, you know, the, the theories on this are multiple. The one that I probably find the most persuasive, but again, you know, I, I'm not putting a lot of stock into this, but the one that people find the most persuasive is that this is a group of Hellenized or Greek Jews, Greek-influenced um, Jews living in Rome. That's the sort of standard reading that you'll find in the commentary literature, that these are, this is a small house church movement in Rome, that, and that's the, 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 uh, the um, addressees of the book. Well, maybe, right? Maybe. And there's some internal evidence for why that might be the case, but we don't know that for sure. Um, another thing that I think we maybe can be assured of is recognizing that these addressees, whoever they are, are um, probably second-generation Christians, right? These are second-generation Christians. And why... Does that come through? Well, in chapter 2, it talks about that which was given beforehand. And there seems to be a kind of communal depth here that goes beyond the original, the hearers of this letter in the first instance. But maybe even more so than that, the kinds of issues that the book of Hebrews is addressing are second generation kinds of issues. Namely, how does one persevere in a faith that's been handed down to them? All right. How does one persevere in a faith that's been handed down to them? Um, things had gotten a little bit lax. Um, resolve had kind of absolved a little bit. And here the author to the Hebrews steps up to the plate and wants to remind these second generation Christians about Jesus, the gospel, and ultimate matters. 
the ultimate matters of life are being addressed in the book of Hebrews, and um, specifically as it relates to the potential of persecution and trial as a Christian. And for those of you who know anything about 1st and 2nd century and 3rd century Roman history, I mean, some of the worst of the persecutions are yet to come. Uh, after Nero, and then you get into the second century, some bad times are coming for Christians. Um, and these, this is a word that's speaking into that about how one is to follow after the perfecter of their faith, namely uh, Jesus Christ. Okay. So all to say, that I, you, I, maybe you sense my tentativeness when I'm giving you these introductory comments. I'm, I'm tentative because we just don't know a lot about what gave rise to the book of Hebrews but what do we have? I mean, I think people often forget this. We have the book of Hebrews, right? We have that. And in some sense, that's sufficient. Um, there's a, it's, I guess it's a, maybe a, a rise of, of historical consciousness that, are, that happened really in the 17th century in a way that really wasn't like this beforehand in the history of ideas where people more and more were attuned um, in their own intellectual world to think in terms purely historical in nature. In other words, if I'm going to understand something, I've got to understand all the historical background that gave rise to X, Y, or Z. Um, that's not necessarily... All that's not bad, by the way. But it's not necessarily the best way out of the gate to come to terms with biblical books. Um, Hebrews was recognized in the early church as a canonical book. And it was a disputed book. I'll go and let the cat out of the bag on that. People disagreed on this. But at the final day, um, Hebrews is recognized as a book that's canonical. And because it's recognized as canonical, it's recognized as being able to render the apostolic faith in its words. Right? The apostolic faith is rendered in the book of Hebrews. Now, just to step back a little bit and give us a larger theological context for this, the book of the Hebrews is not a solo voice in the New Testament, is it? We've got Paul, we've got James, we've got the Gospels, we have Acts. So Hebrews isn't singing a solo all by um, himself. We put Hebrews in conversation with the rest of the books of the New Testament and the Old Testament. Nevertheless, Hebrews is a voice in this large canonical choir. Okay. So, Hebrews... What are we going to do today? Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. We really could probably do eight weeks on this, and that's not hyperbole, but we're not going to. We're going to do it all today. All right. So if you have cell phones or Bibles, or you can look at this. I keep forgetting. Episcopalians, we don't carry around our Bibles, do we? It's all right. You can still get into heaven. Um, all right, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. I'm going to read this out to you. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by... I'm, I'm reading this slowly because there's a lot of interesting sort of linguistic things here. In these last days, He has spoken to us by a son. Do you see that? Not the son, a son. That's, uh, we'll come back to this. Whom He appointed heir of all things through whom He also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint. 
This is the uh, a word that we take our English word character from. Character, right? He is the exact imprint of God's very being. And He sustains all things by the power of His word. When He had made purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's one long sentence, right? I think if you English profs would have a lot of read on that. Run on, right? Okay. So here's a quote I wanted to read you from, uh, I think, one of my favorite commentaries on, on Hebrews by Harold Attridge. Harold Attridge says this, um, The rhetorical artistry of this opening phrase, this, these opening lines in Hebrews, surpasses that of any other portion of Scripture, end quote. Now, either you're trying to sell books, right? He's, he's trying to commentary on this. That's quite a statement, isn't it? The rhetorical artistry of these opening verses in Hebrews surpasses that of any other portion of the Bible. You see, Hebrews 1, 1-4, in its own beautifully crafted way, um, presents the major themes of the book of Hebrews. And here are the major themes. I'll put them before you. Number one, the superiority of the Son to all other modes of, of divine self-revealing. The superiority of the Son to all other modes of divine self-revealing. And here are the two central elements that we're going to talk about for eight weeks. We're going to come at it, at it from multiple angles. We'll come at it from the angle of Yom Kippur. We'll come at it from the angle of, of, of Moses and Sinai. We'll come at it from the angle of all the suffering saints in the Old Testament and even in the intertestamental period in Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to come at this from multiple angles. But here are the major subject issues that we'll be dealing with over the next eight weeks because these are at the heart of what Hebrews is after. Number one, the status of Christ as the exalted Son. And number two, the sacrificial priestly act by which He affected atonement for sin. Can I put it simply? Number one, Jesus as the exalted Son. Number two, Jesus is the one who atones for our sins. That's what Hebrews is about at its core. Now, I want... This might get a little boring. Um, can, can you track all this rhetorical artistry stuff? I want you to see it, if you don't mind. Um, it's, it's what's referred to as a chiasm. Oh, this is getting real. Sorry. Um, but you, the, the Greek letter chi looks a little bit like that. And it also stands for a, a rhetorical device that builds into something. Oh, I'm sorry, music class. Uh, builds into something and then builds away from it. I think, again, I don't know if I'd go to the guillotine over this, but I think Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 is a chiasm. All right, so can I, can I show it to you up here for you note takers? A, verses 1 to 2, the Son and the Prophets. Okay, so the sun is contrasted with the prophets. That's A. Then we go to B. Verse 2, B. The sun as messianic heir. There's something just right about chalk. 
Um, C, uh, verse 2C, the Son's creative work. Okay. Then D. Now, we're moving to D. Okay. Oh, you can't see anymore, can you? I'm, I'm going, well, uh, D. Right here, the sons, I'll just put three for threefold, threefold mediation, oh goodness, of God. All right? So you see A, B, C, D. Then we go back out again. C. Uh, I don't think I can write any lower. Um, okay. The Son's redemptive work. Okay. B. The Son is Messianic King. And then A again. Oh, this is bad for the back. Verse 4. The sun is better than angels. And angels. Well, I'm sure you can't read any of that, can you? Goodness gracious, so bad, the penmanship. I apologize. All right, so can you see this still here? What you have is a nice... Um, uh, correspondence between A, A, B, B, C, C, moving into D, which I think rhetorically highlights D, right? The sun is contrasted with the prophets at the beginning. The end, the sun is contrasted with angels. B, the sun is a messianic heir. B, down here, the sun as messianic king. C, the sun's creative work. C, the sun's redemptive work. And we're going to get into this in a second, but creation and redemption are distinct in God's economy, but they cannot be separated the one from the other. It's creation and then in the middle, which seems to be the sort of highlight of what's going on rhetorically, the Son actually mediates to us um, God Himself. Okay? All right. So can we look through this real fast? Okay. Are we, is that the alarm says I'm done? Uh, okay, we have time. Three, a threefold mediation of God. Well, I'll get to that in a second. And if I don't, hunt me down. All right. All right. So first of all, a the sun contrasted with the prophets. Look again back at verse one. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. Again, I don't want to get too too nerdy here, but. The, the Greek really is so beautiful. It's a, it's a play on two words that sound exactly alike. Polutromos and um, polytreos. It's just two words in many ways, in various ways. It's, it's fun what the author here is doing. He's saying, in the old times, God spoke in various and sundry ways. I think that's how the King James Version does it, right? In various and sundry ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. That's kind of an abstract thing. To the fathers. Who, who are the fathers? Any of those who would be within God's covenant economy before the incarnation of Jesus. So we're talking about 
Adam. We're talking about Abraham and Moses and the will, the, all the children of Israel and Sinai. What are all the ways in the Old Testament that God spoke to His people? Various and sundry ways. He spoke to Adam in the garden. He spoke to Moses from a burning tree. He spoke to the people of Israel by descending with a pillar of fire, a cloud of fire at night and a cloud by day. All of these various and sundry ways that God spoke. Think about the prophets. The ways in which the prophets communicated the Word of God. Hosea goes and marries a prostitute. Isaiah walks around naked for a few days. Ezekiel can't complain about the death of his wife. All of these various and sundry ways that God has spoken in the past, um, that's what He did then, in a former time. But now, here's the strong contrast, right? But now, He has spoken to us in the Son, or if I can put it even more, uh, I think, faithful to the, to the uh, original go here, He's uh, spoken to us in Son, by Son. It's not a claim that God has lots of sons. The lack of the article here emphasizes the unique character of this exalted Son. He spoke to us in His Son. Now, I think we need to be real clear here, and I think for those of you who have been around me long enough, you'll, you'll, you'll know that I would want to emphasize this. There is in no sense that the, the apostle here who's writing this is saying, and now that we have Jesus on the scene, all of those former and sundry ways by which God spoke in the past that are now recorded for us canonically in the Bible, well, you can just put that on the shelf. We don't need that anymore. It's not a claim to supersession, as if now that Jesus is here, all of the revelation of God that preceded Jesus can be put away because it's done its role, like the boosters on the space shuttle, right, that are going up. Once you get to a certain orbit, what happens to those booster rockets? They just go tumbling back down, and there goes the Old Testament right back down into the sea where it belongs, right? That's not the claim here. Why do I know that's not the claim? It's not the claim because from this chapter on through the rest of the book, Hebrews is making an appeal at a time and time again to the Old Testament itself. Psalm 2, Psalm 110, uh, Leviticus 16, uh, the order of Melchizedek. I mean, again and again and again, um, the author of the Hebrews is going to appeal to the Old Testament. So what's the contrast here then between the way in which he revealed himself before and the way in which he reveals himself now in Jesus? What's the contrast? Not one of supersession, where the other is discarded but one of proper orientation. All that which precedes, all the various and sundry ways, God's Word and its various modes of expression, in this moment in time, in God's redemption of Himself, of, of humanity to Himself, all of those words only make sense in light of the Word, Jesus Christ. That's it. The definitive Word by which all other words are measured, is Jesus Christ. Why? Well, it moves on here, the second part. Because He's the Messianic heir. See the next point here? Whom He appointed heir of all things. The Old Testament emphasis was an emphasis on inheritance. And an inheritance that primarily had to do with the land. Right? With land. Um... 
as time moves on, especially in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, this promise toward land did get apocalyptic. It got raised into a way that emphasized heavenly land, right, as well. Um, something that was uh, transcendent, too. And not, not in any way to dispense with the old issues in any way, but to, to reorder the hope for the land in something that was heavenly and eternal. That was a move that was made. So the claim here that Jesus is the heir of all things, that he is the one who has the inheritance, is a claim that tells us now that he has ascended on high, seated at the right hand of the Father, we can be assured that our inheritance is safe as well because he has it in his hands. He's the messianic heir of all things. He has, um, he has gathered the inheritance to himself by right. Because of his obedience, which we'll see later in the, in the book itself. So he's the messianic heir. Then we go to the next part. He is um, through whom he created the worlds. Oh, so much to say here. But uh, I think what the author of the Hebrews is doing is tapping in to this notion of wisdom that you find both in Proverbs and elsewhere in the Bible, where wisdom itself is the creative agent by which God creates the world. Proverbs 8, verse 22. It's actually kind of astounding, but to go to Proverbs 8, you actually enter into the battleground in the 4th century, a text that was debated regarding the eternal divinity of the Son. And so here you go to Proverbs chapter 8, and you see that wisdom and the Word are the agents by which creation comes into being. You go to Genesis chapter 1, you have the Spirit, you have God's Word that speaks, and then all of a sudden there's a world out in front of Him. And then you have in Proverbs 8, wisdom, which is itself now conjoined to the Word in such a way that to speak of Word is to speak of wisdom. At 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, Jesus has become for us what? Wisdom. The very wisdom of God. Greeks look for wisdom in their philosophy. Jews look for wisdom in their signs. And what does Paul say with no there's no turning back, he says, and the true wisdom of God is to be found where? In the person and the work of, of Jesus. Okay? He's the creator. And then you go down to the D part, which is central here. He's the mediator of God's very self. Look at the three ways he does this. Number one, he mediates to us the very glory of God. Number two, He is the exact imprint of God's very being. He is the character. He is the... You can think about it from um, the standpoint of a printing press or a coin machine, you know, the various way, a minting, uh, the way in which co- coins are put together. You pull it down and then you have the exact impress that's wanted to be put into that metal. Jesus is the exact character. He's the imprint of, of the very being of God Himself. And thirdly, He sustains all things by His powerful Word. He reflects God's glory. He's the exact imprint of God's very being. And He sustains all things by His powerful Word. I mean, this is really worth sitting on for a long time. There's something rather profound here, I think, being claimed about the person and work of Jesus Christ. We have not been left to ourselves and to our own devices, to come up with what God is like. 
And, and I think that's something, frankly, that sits in the front seat of our cars in our lives, right? I mean, if le- when left to ourselves, our tendency is to create a God in our own image. That's just the way it goes. I talk about this with students at Beeson. Albert Schweitzer is a kind of a big figure from the early 20th century. Um, and he was a kind of a, you know, just an ultimate man in some ways. He was a, he was a doctor. He was a master pianist. He was a philanthropist. And he was a New Testament scholar all at once. Now, I mean, what does, uh, what does he do? He, he writes a book on the historical Jesus. And by this historical work on Jesus that Schweitzer does, what do you find Jesus looking like at the end of this famous book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus? You find Jesus as a philanthropist, as a kind of Renaissance man, as a kind of, you, know, you find Albert Schweitzer, right? Looks just like him. Right? I mean, we just have, the, the, if left to ourselves, the tendency that we have, I think, is to make a God in our own image who's, man, who's manageable, who we can domesticate, that we can put in our back pocket, that we can, that we can handle. And I think what we learn from the Old Testament as it's, as it's impressing itself on Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 is God's not manageable. Just not. The radiance of His glory. His very being. I mean, these are terms that roll so easily off of our tongues, but when we stop for any moment of time just to reflect on the significance of the claim about God's glory, the term there in the Old Testament is kavod. It, another way of rendering it would be heaviness, weightiness. Um, maybe the term that we bandy about with people that we respect when they walk into a room, we say, that person's got what? Gravitas. There's a certain sort of gravity to that person. I mean, God is heaviness. His, his kavod, His glory, it fills, in, in Isaiah chapter 6, it fills the fullness of the earth. I mean, we just, our, our, our minds can't even begin to download in any way that corresponds to God's glory as it actually is. It's beyond us. It's hand over our mouth kinds of things. And the glory of God itself is a glory that is a consuming glory. You remember Moses asking the question, don't you? It's kind of a bold question. Makes me embarrassed in many ways that Moses even asked it. I'd like to see your glory. Well, you know, and God entertains us. Moses, I mean, it's what makes Moses so unique in the divine economy. He saw God face to face. We don't get to do that. And what does, what does God say to Moses? Well, you can't do that. But I'll put you in a rock and I'll hide you there and I'll pass by you and then you can just see at least a semblance of my glory. Right? And do you remember the traditions from this? Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and what had happened to him? Can't you see Charlton Heston now, right? White hair all of a sudden. Right? The glow is like, who's that guy? Well, that's the guy that just saw the glory of God. <laughs> that's who that guy is, right? And his physical visage was altered. I mean, I, I just don't, I, we can't process this. It's, it's beyond our lives to think about the glory of God. And, and that's why the revelation of God and the humility of Jesus is, is so overwhelming. Why? Because He's revealed His glory. Jesus has revealed the glory of God. John chapter 17, we've talked about this in various contexts here, but John chapter 17, the night before Jesus dies, He's praying. And in that prayer, Jesus says, what? I've shown them your glory. 
And then what does he go on to say? The last verse. And I'm going to show him it even more. Well, what's his glory? Well, the glory that is revealed in Jesus is specifically related to his death and his resurrection. There's the glory of God on display. We tend to think, and this is by the way, you see creation and redemption over there? Those are the parallels that we have, creation and redemption. We tend to think of God's glory and even God's holiness as this transcendent reality that doesn't really interfere with time and space at all. That's not the way in which the Bible understands either glory or holiness. Both of those terms, in all of their grandeur, but both of them are highly relational. God's holiness is not just about His moral um, freedom from any pollution of sin. It is that. But it's more than that. God's holiness is relational. It's that the fact that He draws people into Himself. God's glory is relational. When Jesus reveals God's glory, He reveals it at the cross. That's God's glory on display. It's where up all of a sudden becomes down, and down becomes up for us. It's the paradox of the Gospel. God's glory is revealed on Good Friday. And then it's unveiled in its consummation on Easter Sunday when Jesus breaks through. Why? Because He is. It's one of the powerful moves, I think, that we find in the Gospels. The resurrection, on the basis of how Jesus claims, uh, on the basis of Jesus' own claims of Himself, the resurrection is a necessity. Jesus has to be. He has to be. I am. He is. He's the very core of what isness is, whatever that is. Jesus has to be. So the resurrection from the standpoint of the Gospels and how the Gospels moves to that really doesn't catch us all that much by surprise. It had to be that way because He is the very nature of what God's being is. He is the very nature of reality itself. That is that He is. He is. Well, what time is it? Oh, boy. Well, then you move to His his redemptive work. Um, all right, we'll do some more of this next week. I want to stop now. One of the things I want to talk about you for two, two minutes, and then, then I'll let you go. Um, I, I don't think we reflect enough. Well, let me rephrase that. I won't put that on you. I'll put it on me. I don't think I reflect enough on the significance of God's beauty and His glory and the ability that that has to transform us. I think we tend to think about these matters from the standpoint of moral imperatives or go and do this or go and do that. But what I think we fail, at least I fail to take into account more fully, is how God's very beauty and His glory, that how that has the ability to transform us like Moses. Um, Can I read this to you from David Bentley Hart's book on God. He says, Beauty is the startling reminder even for persons sunk in the superstitions of materialism. That those who see reality in purely mechanistic terms do not see the real world at all, but only its shadow. Standing before a painting by Vermeer, one might be able to describe the object in terms of purely physical elements and events but still fail to see the painting for what it is. 
an object whose visible aspects are charged with a surfeit of meaning and splendor, a mysterious glory that is the ultimate rational, rationale of its existence, a radiant dimension of absolute value at once transcending and showing itself within the limits of material form. In the experience of the beautiful, one is apprised with a unique poignancy of both the ecstatic structure of consciousness and the very grace of being itself. I, 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 I get, I'm, I'm, I'm right, I'm, I'm left brain guy, right? I'm, you know, cerebral in nature. But here I think we see something in Hebrews that's being emphasized at the beginning. And that is our conception of beauty and our appreciation of beauty gravitates, moves toward an understanding that all beauty itself is an emanation of God's own being. And that the ultimate expression of God's beauty is actually seen in the ugliness and the hope of the cross and the, and the resurrection. So the next time, you know, I mean, you think about it, you all know this is true. How do we give an account for things that are beautiful? How do you give an account for the concert that you go to and you say, you know, I really, that was really great. Well, why was it great? Well, it's hard to give a logical answer for that. It was great because it was great, right? And I think this is where we get into this notion of beauty and transcendence, that there's something about beauty itself that gathers us and draws us into the fact that our very existence is gracious. And that beauty itself emanates from God's own eternal being. God is beautiful. And a strong, as Hebrews is going to take us for these next eight weeks, and a strong and a long and a hard look at Jesus is a look into the very core and fabric of what God's beauty actually is and the ability that that beauty has to transform us and to draw us into himself. So Lord, help us as we sort of set out of the gate here um, in Hebrews that you will draw our hearts and minds together around what you're trying to tell us in this book. And I pray that we'll come with hearts that are submissive and humble before it. And we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.